So this class is called Doing Civil Life. This is a, uh, I'd say intermediate level course. There's some hard stuff in it, but it's not foundation. Uh, Ryan teaches the 412 foundations, and JD teaches the 2-2, which is really a sort of theological basis that we want to teach at Stillwater Bible. This class is going to get a little bit deeper, a little bit more abstract in terms of its concepts, but it's scriptural. It's all, uh, it's all organized around scripture. Uh, for several, my first several years at this church, I started writing down all the questions I had about stuff that was taught. Uh, stuff that I didn't know if it was in scripture, I didn't know how it fit, I was trying to make sense of it. Before long, I had enough material, I thought, okay, this is this be a good study. Because my family, they had the same questions I did. Uh, and it ended up being the newness of life, which is based on Romans 6, which deals with our walk as Christians. As believers, how are we supposed to live our lives? I don't know the backgrounds of all of you, but I was uh, raised in a church that essentially taught that you didn't really have a say in your eternal life, but then once you had it, that was kind of the finish line. You were good to go. <laughs> and as I grew and matured, I learned that's not true. And with this study, it deals a lot with what the expectations are for believers. So who am I? My name's Adam Barnes. I am a deacon. I don't know how long we came on the same time as Paige's husband, Garrett. It's probably been six or seven years. I don't know how long it's been. My wife is the children's director of Stillwater Bible. And what qualifies me to teach is, is just it's the grace of God. I was at seminary being taught the wrong stuff. And Brandy and I started dating, and she basically put me in point of decision where you had to stay in Louisville and finish school or come back and marry her. And obviously, I made the right choice <laughs> because a few months into our marriage, she fell into a Bible study at JB's 2 2 class, and she came back and said, What you believe is wrong. <laughs> and I, said, okay. I said, Brandy, I can defend what I believe just as well as that guy can defend. And she said, well, then why don't you come and do it? <laughs> I said, okay. So the next time Jamie taught you to, I was there. And he really did immediately. Uh, I went in with every intention of trying to show him instead of being taught. In four or five lessons then I realized not only was his class structured like a seminary class, like he was being taught uh, with diligence, with organization, with intention, but also that it was based solely on the Word of God not a man-made logic. And so ever since that time, I've progressed and grown. I've tried to be as faithful as I could to be, to be under his teaching uh, so that I could not just grow, but so that I could take these things and pass it on, which leads us to where we're at tonight. Uh, as I mentioned, there's no really true prerequisites for the class, but there are some things that I'm going to assume is true and assume that you assume is true. Uh, some of those things are eternal life that uh, comes by faith alone in Christ alone. Today's lesson is the only time that we're going to cover some of that foundational basis. And because it's important to the foundation of our Christian life uh, that we understand some of those things. Uh, we're going to, I'm going to assume that you assume Scripture is authoritative, that it's inerrant in its original form, uh, and that you know, we know that it says that the Word of God is alive and it's active and sharp with a two-edged sword. Hey! We got three seats. Come on in, we got some more seats. Uh, you guys, there's two guys to Tommy, and we've got those right there, Nathan, if you guys want to see them. That's right. The next thing that we're going to assume is maybe a prerequisite is the work 
uh, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, he is God's son. Uh, he is God in human form. We're going to cover a lot of this today. Uh, but his work was canonical. It was decisive. He lived a perfect life. He gave that life up for us willingly on the cross to pay for our sin. rose again three days later to conquer death. And he offers eternal life to anyone who would believe in him for it. So those are some things that we're basically uh, going to assume that we're all on the same board. Or all on the same page with and everybody's on board with. So let's get into it. The mission in the series, uh, this series and the goals. The lesson goals are wrong. I'm going to send a different form. It'll go online to cover it. But the mission of the series is right. That's to understand our identity as Christians. Understand our identity as Christians. That's a huge thing. Uh, our culture, our society today is confused about identity in general. Uh, they're having difficult understanding what gender they are. Much less what it means to be a believer and what it means to be in Christ as a believer and what the expectations are. This goal, the goal of this series, is to help Christians stand firm on who they are in Christ, what the implications of that are, what the inferences of, of that are, and how we are to apply that in our life. And that's the next thing, is to understand what our role is, to know our role as believers. Uh, if you're like me, you grew up thinking that eternal life was it. That's the finish line. What else is there? Well, Scripture has a lot to say. As a matter of fact, most of the New Testament isn't about how you get eternal life. It's about what you do with it once you have it. There's a role to play for all of us. The third thing is to understand who and, who, we, who and what we are up against as Christians. A major problem within Christendom is that Christians, not unbelievers, Christians think people are the problem. And they're not. Our battle isn't against flesh and blood. And we're going to talk about what our enemy is, who and who he, they are, so that we can appropriately stand firm against their schemes, so that we can be equipped to handle the stuff that comes down to some life. And the last thing is just that it's how we live life based on these truths. And because the truth is, is that we were changed. And when you went from being an unbeliever, meaning you didn't believe in Jesus as Savior, for whatever reason, to being a believer, you changed. You may not have felt anything magical, you may not have had a tingle in your spine or in your stomach, but you change. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, or 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature, a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. This study is going to talk specifically about what went away, what new things have come, and what we're supposed to do with them. So how are we going to live our lives based on that? Because that's part of our identity. That's part of who we are, not just as humans, but Christian humans. We're new creations. And you say that to a lot of people, and they're going to look at you like a deer in the headlights. They don't know what to do with that. I was that for 30 years. And I think that that's a big thing in Christianity. So uh, we're going to skip the lesson goals because I got last time's goals on there. We're going to update that. So let's start. And again, I'm going to preface this. Most of you all can teach a lot of what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about basics of the Christian faith, and it's important to do so because it lays the foundation for who we are as Christians. It's the foundation why we are who we are. So as I go through this, you're going to know this stuff, then think about how you would teach it to others. Because that's our goal, right? If, this, if you know this so much that you're like, okay, I can teach it, then think about how you would teach it. Because that's the goal. I want you to know it clearly enough so that you can articulate it to somebody in a way that they can pick up what you're putting down. So let's start with it. Let's begin by reviewing the gospel message and eternal life salvation. Because these two ideas, the gospel and eternal life salvation, go hand in hand. And neither proposition is relevant without the other. So when we see the word gospel, that's a churchy word. Right? It's the only place we hear it anymore, the word gospel. In scripture, it's referring to what? It's good news. It's good news. As we study today, keep in the forefront of your mind why, why what's so good about it. But in Scripture, really, it can be any good news. Uh, the word gospel in the Greek just means good news. But when we're talking about any, when we're talking about it in Scripture, we're referring specifically to the good news message of salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. So let's get into it. So when we think about it in terms of eternal, or eternal life salvation, we're going to organize it using three aspects. The first thing 
is the information contained in the message itself, the actual information that makes up the news. Does that make sense to everybody? It's the message itself. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, Paul explicitly says what that gospel message is. He says, I delivered to you as a first importance. It was a priority to me that I delivered to you. What I also received, that Christ died on the cross, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, he rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. So he lays it out right there, that it's the death and resurrection. We're going to see that here in just a second. The second part of the gospel message that we want to consider is the gift offered. The gift offered in the gospel message. A lot of people don't consider that there is an offer. And they make it seem like, well, it's selfish if you want. It's not selfish. When Jesus was asked about how to be born again, he talked about what he's offering by being born again in John 3. We're going to see why it's a gift and what the implications of that are. The next thing is the response. So there's this information that's in the message. There's an offer that comes within that message. So how do we respond to that? Or what is the expected response to that? And what does it mean? So let's pull each of these three things out separately. There's two foundational components of the gospel which make up the message itself. The first is what? What is the first part of the gospel message? I deliver to you as a first importance what I will. Death and resurrection. That's the death. Okay. Now pay attention to this part. We're going we're gonna to dig into why it's important that we know this. Why? Why is it important? Why did he have to die? Way to so Rest says the only way to God is that Christ died. And rose again. And rose again. So let's get more specific. Why specifically <coughs> did he die? To be the perfect sacrifice. Okay, to be a sacrifice. Why do we need a sacrifice? Oh, we've got lots of answers. <laughs> so let's think about it again. Because we have the imputed. What do we have from that? Imputed. Imputed what? Sin. Sin. So, sin. Christ, did Christ's death have anything to do with sin? Yeah. He bore our sins on the cross. Okay, so Russ said that he did what? Why, why did he die? He had to pay for our sins. <laughs> and I want you guys to think about that because... I just got about 10 different answers. <laughs> our goal is clarity in our presentation. So why did he die? To pay for sin. Okay. That's step one. And what does Romans 6.23 say? Wait for this Wait for okay. So who is sin? You say that the wages of sin is death, and who's sin? You're alive. No, no. <laughs> now. You're alive now? Okay, so let's think about this. This is going to be important to this lesson, or not to this lesson, but this series of lessons. Sin always creates what? Separation. Which is also what? Spiritual death. That's right. Is separation AR? Yeah. In Scripture, death is sin. For the wages of sin, what's a wage? Amen. It's something you get because it's something you get for something, right? So every time there's sin, there's what? Separation. There's separation. There's death. What's the first death in the Bible? Uh, what's, that, what's the first physical death in the Bible? Cain. Abel. Did you know it's not Cain? It's the animal that God killed to cover their sin. So when Adam and Eve sinned, what did he do? What did they do? They ran and hid. And they learned that they were what? Naked. So they covered themselves. God is a foreshadowing. Sin always brings death. Killed an animal and used their skin to cover. 
sin always brings death or separation. There's an eternal aspect to that, but there's also a Christian life fellowship aspect to that. Because of your sin, we or my sin, our sin, we all come into this world dead in trespasses and sins. So what are we headed for? We're headed for eternal separation. We get a provision. We're going to talk about that in a second. That's good news. But what about now? What about here now? After you've put your faith in Jesus and you have eternal life, does your sin still create separation? Yeah. What does it separate you from? Fellowship. Your fellowship. You don't lose your relationship, but you do break fellowship. And this is where a lot of denominations and a lot of Christians get it wrong because they want to attribute the break of fellowship with the loss of salvation, and that's just simply not true. And when we cut their words straight and we see how it applies and how we practically apply it in our lives, it comes alive. So the wages of sin is death, according to Romans 6.23. So here's another big question in theology. Who did he die for? Everyone. Everyone? Everyone. 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 Believe. So everybody's saved then? Everybody that believes in him. So he only died for those who believe in him? He died for all. Okay, so, he, so his death was for everybody. His death was for everyone. And if that's true, if Jesus' death paid for the sins of everyone, then why aren't we all saved? Because that's not salvation. Salvation only comes from faith. Okay. So the payment for sin does not equal salvation. Or forgiveness for that matter. So, we're getting ahead of ourselves, so we're going to come back to this to keep this in your mind. So, 1 Corinthians 15 said that he died according to the scriptures, that it was foretold. What scriptures? Because they didn't have the New Testament back then. The Old Testament. Okay, what Old Testament scriptures? Anybody know specifically? Uh, prophets. Yeah, Isaiah 53. The entire chapter is about Jesus. Specifically, verse 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Alright, so the second part of the gospel message, if the first is death, what's the second? Yeah, right, as you said it earlier. Resurrection. Resurrection. The second part is Jesus' resurrection. Why wasn't his death enough? Why is the resurrection necessary for us to have eternal life? That's true. When he rose, he showed that death has no more hold. He defeated, he conquered the power of death. That's exactly right. So not only did he deal with sin, he dealt, he dealt with sin and its result, which is death. Not only did he pay, he healed the sickness, he dealt with the symptoms. He did it all. His death and resurrection are equally important. You can't have one without the other. Let me ask you this. If Derek said, I love you guys so much, then I'm going to go die for you. Because I want to take your sins. Could he have, could, could, Derek, could Derek go die for us? Yeah. Yeah, yeah he could. Yeah, I'm Would his death be satisfactory to pay for our sins? No. Why not? Because he's yeah. Because he's sinful. So he couldn't be our perfect substitute. What about this part? Can he do this? Why not? Who, who said it? Was it Chelsea? He's not God. He's not God. There's only one person who could conquer death. One entity that can defeat death. Even if I wouldn't die, even if I was perfect, I still can't rise. I'm not God. Romans 1 that he said says that he declared himself to be the Son of God through the resurrection. That's a big deal. So why did Christ rise from the dead? Number one, to conquer death. And he had dealt with. And two, to demonstrate his deity. Or to prove himself to be the Son of God, everyone said. Two is to demonstrate his deity. As 
just another way to say that he showed he was God. Everybody with me so far? What are the two parts of the gospel message? Jesus' death and resurrection. Why did he have to die? Why is he the only person that could do it? Okay, why did he have to rise again? Okay. He proved his deity. He proved his deity. According to what scripture? Romans 1 4. So that's how, that's how he, Romans 1 did. They didn't have Romans when Jesus died. Oh, is that Isaiah? Mm-hmm. It's not. Yeah. Remember the number, Psalm 20. Psalm 16. 10. And we know that because it's what Peter uses to teach in Acts. He says that he won't allow his holy one to undergo decay. He won't abandon him to shield. He won't allow his holy one to undergo decay, which demonstrated that he was going to rise. Did I leave the verbiage on the next page? Yeah, okay. Let's read through this together because here it is. By the way, you all just look me in the eyes and answer those questions, so you're equipped to give a clear gospel message. If you can talk to somebody uh, in the same way that you just talked to me and tell them the things you just told me, you can give them a clear gospel message. At least the informational part of it. Here it is. Jesus, who existed for eternity past, that's important, Jesus wasn't created. He humbled himself by becoming a human. Think about that. For eternity past, he existed in perfect fellowship with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, and he humbled himself to become a stinking human being like you and me. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit born of a virgin, so he didn't get the imputed sin of Adam. And then on top of that, he lived a life without sin. So he was perfectly sinless. He was spotless, and he was qualified to be our substitute because of that. He's the only person that could have done it. So then uniquely qualified, he obediently died on the cross as the substitute for all people, paying for the sins of the entire world. We didn't harp on it, but there's a lot of people that want to tell you that he didn't die for those who wouldn't believe in him. That's not true. John 3.16 says, what? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. It didn't say the believing world. It didn't say for the world that wouldn't believe in him. First John 2, 2 said he's the satisfactory payer for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for that of the entire world. He died once and for all. That's exactly right. The just for the unjust. <clears throat> Jesus' uh, payment was satisfactory for all humans for all time. Before Jesus, they believed in the coming Messiah. After Jesus, they looked back to the Messiah, Messiah who fulfilled uh, the prophecy, which was Jesus Christ. So three days later, he rose again to life, overcoming the power of death. These facts, and that's what they are, they're facts. They're good news. Because without a Savior, we could not escape our sin or its consequence, which is what? Separation. Death and Separation. However, through the gospel message, Jesus offers and promises every person a way to life and inclusion. People think that people want to say that uh, Christianity uh, isn't inclusive. It's the most inclusive religion that there is, by the way, if you even want to call it a religion. Because Jesus died for who? Every person. We are not an exclusive religion. We are inclusive of everybody. Because Jesus died for us. He made the way of salvation possible. He promises every person a way to life and inclusion, which is the second aspect of organizing the message. Alright, so in addition to these facts, which is, and I'm not, I don't mean to diminish them, but that's all they are, they're just facts. In addition to the information about Jesus, the gospel promises a gift to those persuaded by its message. What gift is offered in the gospel message? Eternal life given as a gift. We're going to talk about it a little later, but let's touch on it right now. Is it important that it's a gift? Yeah. Yeah. Nathan says it. Why? Because it works out. 
It's exactly that. It's not a reward. Eternal life is never called a reward. That's exactly right. Ephesians 2 8 9 says, For by grace you're saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's a gift. Not as a result of works, so that you can't boast about it. I can't say, Look what I did to get eternal life. It's a gift. It's nothing I can do to earn it or to merit on my own. By faith in Christ, we're gifted eternal life. The minute that you say it's a reward, you're taking your eternal life salvation in your own hands, and that's not a good thing, by the way. You may not do a lot of the things that you're not supposed to, but I promise you you're not doing all the things you are supposed to. There's two sides of that same coin, and everybody wants to leave out that other side of it. Being sinless doesn't mean just not doing the things that you're not supposed to do, but it also means doing the stuff you're supposed to, and most people don't. So the minute you take salvation into your own hands and say that I can work for it, I can marry it, I can earn it, good luck. Eternal life is an endless existence with Jesus Christ. That's just what we're doing. How would I define it? So these facts pertain to the gospel. Jesus' life, Genesis 5, his death, and his resurrection, they're important. Why? I put in bold there because they explain his credentials as the Savior of humanity. They explain his credentials. Did I not write that in there, y'all? You guys know what I mean by that? Those facts, that part of the information, we said that's how we're going to organize the gospel message. Those facts are what describe his credentials as our Savior. Because of his work, not ours, and its subsequent implications about who he is, all of humanity must choose how to respond. That's really cool, by the way. Think about that. Because of what he did, because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he has put every person in the human history to the point where they have to make a decision about who he is. So what do you do with it? In Acts, we see after this, Paul, Peter, Stephen, they're all going and teaching, and it always ends with, some believe, some do. So what are we going to do? It's the same thing. Take this message out to the world, knowing that some will believe and some will. That's not our job. Our job is to give it out. So the appropriate response to the facts and information that make up the gospel is to believe in. Sometimes scripture says to believe. John 3, 16. 1 John 5, 13. John 5, 24. Uh, trust in. You can put trust slash accept. John 1 12 says, But as many as received him, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Or you can say, Place your faith in. Believe in, trust in, place your faith in. Scripture uses all of those. And what are we believing in? What are we trusting in? What are we putting our faith in? Jesus. Wait a second. What about those facts? Aren't we putting our faith in those facts? Or are we going to put our faith in Jesus? We put our faith in Jesus because of those facts. This is a major, major flaw in a lot of systems. And we're going to see what some of those flaws are in just a second. But I want to kind of bring the point home. Notice that belief, trust, and faith all have one object. One object. Your faith, your trust, your belief is all in something. Who or what is that something? It's literally the person of Jesus. It's not the idea. It is the person of Jesus. We have information the Old Testament saints did they were looking forward to this nameless, unnamed Messiah. He was just the coming Messiah. We have information. We know that that was Jesus. He's the one who fulfilled Isaiah 53. He's the one who fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies. The person of Jesus Christ. Look, anybody that wants to argue this, here's just a menagerie of verses just off the top of my head. That you can, we can literally provide 
tons of them. But here's a lot of verses that talk about faith, about trust, about believing in Jesus all for eternal life. About how a person is justified. About what you're believing in him for. About how it's not by works. But there's a problem. In 2022, our vernacular, our vocabulary has changed. And I've put this to the test. I work on campus. I've employed literally thousands of students in my time at OSU. And I get to have this conversation with a lot. And so I know how varying the answers are. But if I ask a student, how do you have eternal life? And we go down this path. And, I, and they say, and we eventually comes to the conversation about believing. I say, what do you mean by that? What do you mean believe in Jesus? And the answers are always different. Here's the truth. Some people say, well, just believe that he existed. Or believe it is real. Mm-hmm. Or was real. Does that save you? Does believing that Jesus existed and that he was real save you? No. No. It can't. Otherwise, every Jewish person and Pharisee that walked in Jesus' day, they saw him. They knew he was real. They, were, they didn't have eternal life. They weren't saved. Satan knows he's real. Even though angels don't have a way of salvation. Um, but think about that. Believing the fact that Jesus was real, that he existed, is not Satan. And sometimes, if you're talking to somebody and you say, what do you mean by believing in Jesus gives you eternal life? They'll say, we'll just believe that he's real, that he's God. That ain't it, bro. There's more to it. What if they say, well, I just believe Jesus is God? Believing Jesus is God doesn't save you? No. It doesn't. Believing in Jesus, even if you thought he was God, you still have to put your faith in Him as Savior or for eternal life, however you want to say it. It's not the facts about Jesus that saved you. It's the person of Jesus that did the work that saved you. And I literally asked this to somebody this semester as I was writing this. They said, well, I just think that because you just believe in who Jesus is, that He was good, and that He was all these different qualities... I'm like, does that, does that save a person? Don't, those facts alone don't save don't save. Believing in Jesus as Savior and for eternal life saves you. Um, many of you guys know this. Was Jesus himself ever asked this question? Was Jesus ever asked how someone could be born again? He was? Nicodemus, that's a good example So let's let's see what Jesus did. When Nicodemus asked him in John 3, what must a person do to be born again? Jesus starts, because he's a great teacher, he said starts back where? He's talking to a Pharisee, he knows the law, so he goes back to the law. He goes back to Numbers. And he gives him a story that this guy would know and be able to relate to. And so, just a quick paraphrase, the Israelites in camp, they've got their tents up, they're mad at God, they're thinking, we should just go back to Israel, at least we would have had something to eat and drink. So God gets upset with them, he sends snakes in their camp. These snakes are biting people and they're dying. And they're like, okay, 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 Moses, go, go, go intercede for us. Go to God and tell him we're sorry. Just tell him, tell him to keep these snakes from bites. And what does God tell him to do? He says, Jesus tells Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, because that's what he told him to do. He told Moses, go put this snake up in the middle of camp, stick it on a pole, and then anyone who gets bit looks to what? The object they look to for their salvation is in the middle of their camp. Jesus tells Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. 
Then he gives the famous verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, and whoever believes in him won't perish. He'll have everlasting life. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Who do you look to for salvation? Is it the facts about who Jesus is? Or are we looking to Jesus, the person who did what he did? The object of our faith is Jesus Christ for eternal life salvation. <coughs> so we're saying that the appropriate response to the gospel message is to believe in Jesus. I mean specifically that a person believes in the person of Jesus Christ for eternal life salvation because of the facts laid out in the gospel message. Certainly we believe these facts, and based on these facts, we place our faith in Jesus as Savior and for eternal life. This differentiation between facts of Jesus and the person of Jesus as an object of faith is important to understand. It is because the importance surrounding the clarity of the gospel's message and uh, how it's communicated and interpreted both have become muddied over time. People want to make it about everything but this. Jesus himself said this is how it happens. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. It doesn't get any more clear. Jesus is a good teacher, by the way. <laughs> I, think, I think we should listen to him. Unfortunately, we've got all sorts of people who say anything but this. Well, yeah, you may look and believe, but you know, what if you didn't really believe? You just looked. I promise you, those people who were in dire straits and knew their death was coming, they weren't thinking about that. They were looking to the object of their faith for salvation, they were saying. They didn't have to prove it by getting up and going and doing a bunch of stuff afterwards. I don't think they really cared to snake with bronze. Yeah, I don't either. So, just as Moses looked up the serpent in the wilderness, even so much the Son of Man lives there. That's pretty clear. Jesus is a pretty clear teacher. And he lays it out right there for us. People want to make it about everything but that, it seems like. You can literally listen to pastors and people teach, and it's almost like they want to avoid the phrase believe. It's crazy. At least eight times, specifically, eight times in the book of John, he says to believe in Jesus for eternal life. That book is about belief. In that book, over 90 times the words believe is used. In chapter 20, he said, Many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, but these were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you will have life in his name. It's that simple. And it's foundational to our identity. Who we always believe starts here. Once you put your faith in Christ for eternal life, you get it. What you do with it after that is up to you. Whether or not you're going to participate with the working of the Holy Spirit in your Christian life, there's a burden of responsibility on you for that. So let's talk about it. Before we get to that point, I want to talk about being secure in your salvation and assured of your salvation. Because a lot of people, because of these unclear and muddy messages, they hear this, they get it, they get pumped up, and they go out and listen to somebody else, or Satan is firing his arrows of doubt at him, and all of a sudden they're, they're not sure anymore. It was made clear, but now, I don't know, maybe, maybe. I mean, I was feeling really good about it yesterday, but today I've done some things that I'm kind of ashamed of, and I don't know if I'm safe anymore. Yeah, that's the world we live in. Some of you may identify with that. Some of you, some of you may you know, go to bed every night and say you can pray for your salvation because you don't know. I did. I know other people in our church have talked about that. But what does it mean? So let's talk about it. What does it mean to be secure? Are you sure of your security? And I'm just going to tell you, the answer to these questions should have a bearing on your purpose as an individual. Because it's part of your identity. It should have a bearing on your priorities in your life, the perspective by which you look and the lens that you look at life through. And we're going to see throughout this series of lessons that to walk in the newness of life is to walk with a new purpose, with new priorities, and with a new perspective. That's what we're supposed to do. 
Because, as we said, eternal life isn't the start, or isn't the finish line. It's, it's the starting line. Yes, there's so many people just kind of floating in this world of apathy as Christians. You're like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. What am I supposed to do? And a lot of it starts with their instability. And they're unstable as believers because they're not sure if they're saved. So what does it mean to be secure? What does it mean to be secure? The English word secure derives from the Latin language. It's the Latin prefix C, which is just means without. And cura. Anybody want to guess what that means? Yeah, yeah cool care or attention. In some places, anxiety, which is funny to think about. Because if we're going to talk about the mental health and well-being of our nation or individuals in our nation, right now, this is a big deal. Without care, without attention, without anxiety, you don't have to worry about it. You are secure because God promises you eternal life, and he has the power to keep his promise. I don't. I can promise the girls that when we get home, we're going to play hockey. Or that the next time we come to church, they can go there and get a frosty. But something may happen. I might not be able to fulfill that promise. God always keeps his promises. He's not going to say something that he's not going to do, and he has the power and ability to keep all his promises. The intended meaning of the word secure literally conveys something safe, something protected, or undisturbed. Think about that in terms of your salvation. Can it be termed inescapable as well? Yeah, it can. Sure. Without escape? Yeah, I think so. It's safe. Think about that in terms of your salvation. Your eternal life salvation. If you've put your faith in the person of Jesus Christ, your salvation is safe. Your salvation is protected. It's undisturbed. Nothing can get at it. You can be without anxiety without worrying about it. Because of their faith in Jesus Christ, the believer doesn't have to worry about their future existence. That's powerful. They are secure the moment they believe. By the way, another huge truth. Did you know that? Did you know that your eternal life isn't a package that you get upon death? You don't die and all of a sudden get handed eternal life. That's a concept that people, I don't think, get right in their mind. Your eternal life starts here and now. You have it the moment that you believe. Scripture actually goes to great lengths to demonstrate this truth, especially the Apostle John. So let's just look. John 5 24. If you guys would open up your Bibles to John 5 24. So once you're there, somebody read it. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. It does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Thank you, Peter. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears and believes him who sent me has what? What tense is that? They have. They has, I'm saying has because that's what he wrote, has eternal life. That's present tense. Right now, if you put your faith in Jesus, you present tense have eternal life. That's important to understand because we're going to come back to it later in the series. Right now you have it. And then what? He who hears and believes has eternal life and does not what? You are not judged. That's cool. <laughs> So, not, does it say not come into judgment or not judge? What does it say? Does not come into judgment. Some places translate that condemn. Either way, it doesn't matter. Because that's the bad side of judgment. Think about that. You're never going to come into judgment once you put your faith in Christ. That's cool. Because we deserve to be judged all the time. But has what? 
passed from dead to life. For believers, that's past tense. You've done that. You have passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in you, he has eternal life, does not come into condemnation, but is passed out of death into life. Your past, your present, and future are secure. You are eternally secure by faith in Jesus Christ. That should give you confidence. Flip forward a few chapters to John 10. This is the famous sheep passage. We're going to look just at one verse real quick. It starts out, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, they follow me, I give eternal life to them, they're never going to perish. My Father, who's greater than them all, is he's able to keep them. What does it say? So let me read verse 28. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them from life. Oh, cool, he adds one man. So he gives what? He gives eternal life. My sheep hear my voice. They know me. Or they follow me. I know them. They'll never perish. I give eternal life to them. And they will what? They'll never perish. And no one can what? I like that. No one can so no one can snatch them. They'll give eternal life. They'll never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. So put those two verses together. When do you get eternal life? Immediately. Are you ever going to come into judgment? No. Are you ever going to perish? That's really good news. That's great news. I, you know, I've studied this with people before, and almost everyone says, you know, comes back with, well, you know, if you, you can be saved, but if you turn it away from God and turn your back on God and, you know, everything you can do against God, then you won't be saved. So yeah. they're saying you can take your, you can take your stuff out of, their, out of his hands, and you can't. Yeah, you can't. Just, I mean, so logically, let's think about that. And this, because this is something that gets brought up, and I'm sure people are going to watch this and bring up the same question. I've actually had this exact problem in this church with somebody. And what do you get the moment you believe? Eternal life. It's not eternal if they can go away. If you can take yourself out of his hand, and you lost it, then you've made it wrong. He had life for a little bit. That wasn't eternal life. That's what, you know, I call him. No, yeah, and that's your part. Obviously, if you think that you can take yourself out of God's hand, then you must be God. You must be more powerful than God. Pretty strong statement. We're gonna see in this. We're gonna see in this series of lessons why that's true. How do we differentiate these truths? Because that's not just that's an extreme, right? Yeah. There's an extreme. Between somebody who puts their faith in Christ for eternal life, like they put they, their object of faith is Jesus, but then later in their life they turn away. That is an extreme example, but there's a whole slider scale in between those two things. What is sin, by the way? Is everything on that slider scale? <laughs> sin is defection from God's word. Anytime that you sin, especially presumptively, meaning you know what you're doing is wrong, you're going to do it anyway, you are literally saying in that moment, I do what I want. I'm God. I know that what he says is good, it's right. But I'm going to do mine. I'm going to do mine. I'm going to do what I want anyway. In that moment, you're making yourself out to be the God. That's on that slider scale. So how many bad works is enough to make somebody an unbeliever? Or unjustified, or unrighteous. Otherwise, Jesus is going to have to crawl back up on that cross again. And he's not going to do that. Alright. They're eternally secure. They'll never, no one snatch them out of God's hand. They are eternally secure. The theme's going to continue. You don't have to turn there because we all know it. What two things characterize those who believe? For God so loved the world, 
gave us only God and Santa. Whoever believes will Nothing. never perish, but has eternal life. This is foundational to your identity. People don't progress or grow or spiritually mature a lot of times because they have doubts about this. This is a major roadblock in people's progression or in their spiritual growth. Because if they, if they doubt it, if they're not sure, their life's going to look like a roller coaster, probably. And then when it gets to the point of it, they're like, I'm not sure if it matters anyway, so why would I do it? But guess what? God wants you to know. In 1 John 5.13, he wants you to know. And he said, these things I've written to you who believe so that you may know that you have eternal life. I know we're being a dead horse here, but it's important because doubt is real. This is a, this is a battle. The people in every single body across the nation and across the world have. God wants you to know, because if you know, you're more likely to go all in for him. And that's what he wants. He wants us to grow, to mature, to be more and more conformed to his image. These things I've written to you who <coughs> believe so that you may know that you have eternal life. Not so that you will know, to those who believe, I, yeah, you guys may believe, and then maybe someday you'll know it. He says, I want you to believe for the right now you'll know it, that you have it. Not that you'll get it, but that you have it. God wants believers to know that they have eternal life the moment <coughs> they believe that they're eternal life. <coughs> when a person says, and I read this straight out of Q2, or excuse me, 412, it is super, super profound in my opinion. Because this is going to help you when you have conversations with people. When a person says eternal life can be lost after belief is Jesus Savior, here's what they're saying. It means eternal life is not eternal. Everybody understand what we mean by that? When somebody says that you can lose eternal life, they're saying, because you get it the moment you believe, they're saying that it wasn't eternal. And that they've made it wrong. That's problem one. Number two, they're saying that salvation is not by faith in Jesus. They're saying it's based on your faithfulness, whether or not you're living it out or demonstrating it. Because they're saying that salvation is based on our works and or our faithfulness, rather than the work of Jesus and God's faithfulness. And Paul, by the way, deals with this exact same thing. In Galatians 2.21, he says, I am not going to nullify the grace of God. Because if our righteousness comes from works or from the law, then Christ died needlessly. If you can merit your own salvation, then why do we even need Jesus? That's Paul's argument. We can't. There's nothing that we can do to earn it or merit it. We need Jesus. Because of his work, we put our faith in him and we get eternal life. It's that simple. When a person places their faith, now let's talk about our position. When a person places their faith in Jesus, we're going to talk about the many changes that occur throughout this series of blessings. Behold, the old things have passed away and the new things have come. Many changes occur, many things transform. However, the change in the believer's positioning is one of the most overlooked and misunderstood occurrences in Scripture. When we talk about our positioning, what are we talking about? Anybody know? It's good if you don't, because that's what we're going to talk about. But what we're talking about is, where, where are you? Where are you at? Because there's a couple of aspects that you can look at to answer that question. But here's where we're going to start. By faith in Jesus as Savior, the Holy Spirit seals new believers and places them into one body, which is the church or the body of Christ. And he unifies or identifies us with Jesus Christ. So where are we? You're in Christ. 
you've been identified. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit where he identifies us with Jesus Christ. We move from death to life, from darkness to light, from, here's the big one, from unrighteousness to righteousness. At this point, we are in Christ. So often in Scripture, you see this term in Christ. Colossians 3, 3, 7, Corinthians 5, 17, and Ephesians 1, Ephesians 4, all these different places where we're in Christ. Well, what does that mean? It's talking about our position, which is part of your identity. It's who you are and where you're at. You're in Christ. I think if people understood that, all the benefits, the consequences, the inferences, the implications, all the stuff that comes with that, it will affect the way they live their life. It will affect the way I live my life. At this point, they're in Christ. This means that believers receive Jesus Christ's righteousness. And our relationship to God is established. That's what this lesson's about. What's the title of this lesson? It's the foundation for our identity. The foundation for our identity is who? It's Jesus Christ, and we are in Him by faith. That's where it starts. So when somebody starts talking to you about the gospel message, your eyes should light up. Because that's who you are. It's where you're at. Look what Charles Ryder writes. There are only three options to God open to God, as sinners stay in his courtroom. He's not saying, he's not talking about a future judgment, he's giving a concept, he's doing like an if-then type of conceptualization. If God looks at this as, as a judgment, then he only has three options. He either has to condemn them. Why does he have to condemn them? They're guilty. They're guilty of sin, and they are un... They're unjust or un... Same thing. Un, unjust, unrighteousness. They're unrighteous. Okay, so he has to condemn those people because he's a just God. If he doesn't, if he can't, if he doesn't do that, he compromises his own righteousness to receive them as they are. He can't do that. That's not fair. That would make him unjust. Or he can change them into righteous people. He says if he can't exercise the third option then he can announce or declare them as righteous, which is justification. That's a big word that we're going to use a lot, but it's the basis for our identity. We are justified before God by our faith in Jesus. And he does this exact thing, by the way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a, he's a new creation. He does change it. whether we live like it or not sometimes. Right? The foundation for our identity is our righteous standing before God. This is justification, which is our source verse. Look what he says. Therefore, having been justified by faith, declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of what Jesus did, we don't ever, we no longer have to stand in opposition to God. We have peace with Him through Jesus. And then, look at this overlooked verse. Through whom we have obtained our introduction. Paul's saying the exact same thing we're talking about today. It's the foundation for our identity. We've obtained our introduction into this grace, or by faith into this grace, in which we stand. That's this life. We've obtained our introduction into who we are as people through Jesus' work. We're justified by Him. We're at peace with God. And we have an opportunity to live this life through Him. And in the future, we exult in the hope of the glory of God. That's glorification. That's future tense salvation. There's all three there, by the way. There's justification, sanctification, and glorification all right there. We have been justified. We are being sanctified by our introduction, by faith into this grace in which we presently stand. And then we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Eternal life is not the 
Eternal life is a? Not a? Reward. It's something that's gifted part of the moment you believe. It can't be lost and it can't be taken away. Eternal life and salvation of those who believed is secure. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to be anxious about it. You're held, you're safe, you're protected by God. We don't have to worry about it. No one can snatch you out of his hand. Eternal life is not the finish line for Christians. It's the starting line. Application. Number one, if you have it, you should understand a clear gospel lesson, but you pay for Jesus for eternal life. I know most of you are you have. But here's the more important part for those of you who have. Understand it so clearly that you can articulate it clearly. Give the gospel message in such a way that it's easy for somebody to understand it. Tell somebody why Jesus died. Why he needed to die. For who he died for. Why did sin be dealt with? Why did death be conquered? Why did resurrection matter? How is Jesus qualified to be humanity's substitute? This, these are literally the components of the gospel message. If you can answer this, you can literally talk to anybody. Starting with your kids, your family, your friends, your co-workers, and into the world. Is eternal life a gift or a reward? Does, does the answer to that question matter, by the way? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Because what are you looking to for your salvation? Your works or the finished work of Jesus? Three, I put it a different way than just understand it, but accept it. This is hard for a lot of people. Accept it, understand it, and equip the security of your salvation. You're secure whether you believe it or not. If you put your faith in Jesus for eternal life, you're secure whether you know it or not. But when you get it, it will impact your life. Your eternal life begins the moment you believe it. You're never going to come in condemnation. You're never going to perish. No one can snatch you out of your hand. And God wants you to know that. He wants you to know that right now, you have eternal life. You have those two parallel lines of existence. You have the life in the flesh, and you have your spiritual life that have already started. He wants you to live this life in the flesh like you're going to in the spirit someday. Four, know that by faith in Jesus Christ, the believer is declared righteous. What's the $5 theological word for that? Justified. That matters because you're going to get the scripture and you're going to see that a man is justified by faith and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no man can be justified. You're going to see that uh, if the one who does not work but believes in who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So justification and being declared righteous matters because Paul in scripture deals a lot with it. And your new positions in Christ. That's cool. The more you get it, the more it will affect you.